You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. A man unaware and unsuspecting enters a dangerous area. Now, let's see if there's anything good to eat in the kitchen. Little did he suspect what was being cooked up in this makeshift domestic laboratory. Hey, uh, looks like Molly's making something. She's got these bowls and measuring cups out here. Can you hand me that spoon over there? Every one of you listening to this program, watch out. Because soon, very soon, the most horrifying monster ever to creep and crawl will be oozing from this kitchen. You got a big cup of water there. Uh, what are you doing with that? I'm going to put this borax powder into this water here and mix Not it Not very dramatic, I have to say. It just sort of dissolves in there. But, I mean, why are you doing this? That isn't joy of cooking, that recipe. No, it's not, because look what we're going to add next. Elmer's glue-all. Elmer's glue-all. Okay, fill the other cup with just a little bit of glue. Well, we're, gonna, we're making something here, Seth. Yeah. Tell Did me when it looks like it's about a half inch. Half inch? Well, yeah, but uh, what's the volume measure? I mean, how do they know I, what I size don't, cup I, you're using? I, I All don't right. know. Okay, so is that... You're never so going to be able to pour it out of there. It's glue, I'm, you know. I'm pouring glue, yeah. Elmer's glue, into this plastic cup. Is this for a stick-to-your-ribs kind of... Uh... <laughs> kind of meal. Here, yeah. take that spoon. Okay. Can you guess what we're making? Well, it's, it's actually, it's, it's pretty viscous, actually. I, I, I thought it would just be like glue, but it isn't. It's more like jello or something. Actually, it's slime. This is slime? We're making slime. This is a slime recipe. It's, it's sort of like, you know, it's like a giant wad of white gum now. Okay. So can you keep stirring? Yeah. Just, just, just like I did this morning in bed. I'll just keep stirring. Ooh. Hug. Look at that. Oh, my God. Oh, ooh, can I touch it? Well, well Seth, we're making slime because if you understand slime... Um, you understand the basic processes of life. Is that true? Is this the secret to That's understanding right. the basic? Well, I <laughs> this is the secret to life. You didn't even have to climb up a mountain for the answer. As I say, it looks like a giant, I mean, something that might have come out of somebody's nose or something. No, I don't know. It's, <laughs> you it wouldn't be like touching big, it then, would you? Know, no, I wouldn't. It's, it's a big piece of white gum. I mean, it's, it's kind of, well, it's slimy. Let me, let me hold it. Oh, that's really Ew. neat. Yeah. Ooh. It's like a pet rock, except it's slimy. Ooh. Oh, 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 we forgot the most important thing. We have to add some food coloring. Oh, really? Well, I'm, I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak, and I've just been slimed on Are We Alone? Right now it's white. Yeah, I think uh, ISO standard slime is always green. It's slime should always be green. Slime should be green. Okay, yeah. so I'll add this. It's not easy so being I'm, green slime. <laughs> okay, so I'm adding green food coloring to our slime mixture Ooh. here. It looks like a little, little green brain in there now. You know, it's not even living. Why are we making non-living slime? Well, just to get a feel for it. Oh, hi, Tori. Hi, guys. Hey, Tori. How are things over at NASA? Things are fine. Pretty far out. As you know, Seth, Tori is an astrobiologist, and he actually knows a thing or two about slime. Now, what do you think of our slime here? Yeah, it's uh, 
It has some of the characteristics of slime. It's green. It's a little bit gooey. It's it's not bad for a beginner slime. Tori, what's the difference between our slime and real and slime in the in the real world? Well, I mean, this is slime we've made in the kitchen out of a few simple ingredients. It's borax and glue and some water. Real slime is much more complicated, of course. When we talk about slime, we're talking about life, basically, and most people think of microbial life as being something like slime. So microbial life, of course, is a lot more complicated. Now, doesn't it have something in common, though, that we have a polymer here, which is the glue which holds everything together, and isn't that also a characteristic of, of slime? It is in some ways. So, so slime, for lack of a better description, is the way that biology controls the world around it. We all want to have some sense of control on the world around us. Biology creates slime, in essence, to exert some chemical and physical control on the world around it. So, and the way it does that is actually by creating polymers. Um, we do that with jello in the kitchen. Uh, we do that with starch. Like if you make Chinese food and you want to add some structure to the sauce, you add a little bit of starch. There are all kinds of chemical ways that we do this with polymers. Biology does essentially the same thing. It's using something like a combination of jello and starch uh, to add structure to its world around it. You know, I brought some real slime with me. This is something I carry oh. with me wherever I go. He's just, impugning our slime. Just, you've seen just our in slime case. and you've upped it one. This is real biological slime. This is an actual microbial community. Can Mike, I hold and I'll, it? I'll ask you guys to check it ah, out and see if you can describe what it's all about. Oh, it is very slimy. So what I'm looking at in front of here, it looks like a piece of... In some ways, it looks like very thin-cut tofu, dark. It just feels like a slippery piece of rubber or something, except to know that it's alive. Compare, I mean, Compare it with our slime. Look, side by side, Seth. What yeah. do you think? Well, I mean, our slime looks like something Hollywood would make. Tori's slime looks like something that maybe nature would make. Yeah. These are, this, this slime is actually a microbial mat from Baja, California. A microbial mat. Where do you micro- find those? Microbi- you find microbial mats everywhere. Uh, microbes like to grow on surfaces. And uh, you can prove this to yourself by ceasing to brush your teeth for a couple of days. And then <laughs> run, your, run your teeth across them, you'll find the beginnings of a microbial mat. Uh, you feel a little bit of slime on your teeth. And if you let that go for years and years, you'd get something like you see here. Now, now, you, now, one of your ideas that you propose as an astrobiologist is that life on another world would actually be slime. You call this a slime world. A slime world, yeah. Describe a slime world. Well, so I think any world that has organic life would have to go through a slime phase. We went through a slime phase here on our own Earth. We have life on Earth that's now been around for maybe three and a half billion years or so. For probably the first two and a half to three billion years of that time, this was slime world exclusively, nothing bigger than microbiology. And well, when you say slime world, would, would you find slime just about everywhere on, on uh, you know, in the oceans, on the land? Where would you find slime? I think you would. Just about, every, just about everywhere that we have life now, you could find slime before. We think of ourselves as very advanced, evolved, that sort of thing. But physiologically speaking, everything that is done by creatures in the macroscopic world, uh, by people, by toads, by trees, by flowers, all of those things are done by microbes. And so anywhere that we can persist, slime could also persist and did persist. Are you saying, Tori, that that slime is such a good invention of these microbes that you might find slime on any other world? I mean, is it that good? Is it that great? It's not so much the slime itself. I think the slime is just kind of a byproduct of the microbiology. The suggestion is microbiology is such an effective mode of biology and such an important precursor to any other biology that I think we'd be more likely to encounter that first before anything else. If we went to the slime world with our rocket and we landed, would the rocket just slide off? Would it slide off? No, I think it would land with a soft squish. (laughs) Welcome to the big queasy. it makes me wonder, though, is do we actually have to go to another world to detect whether or not there's slime there? Is there some way of detecting a slime world from here on Earth? 
There actually is. So all biology changes the world around it. As we're having this conversation, we're taking in oxygen, we're breathing out carbon dioxide, we're changing the chemistry of the world around us. And those vast numbers of microorganisms throughout a long stretch of geologic time created the oxygen that we have in our atmosphere now. And it turns out it's really hard to get an atmosphere that looks like ours without something like photosynthetic microbiology. So if we looked with the right kind of telescope from far away, in the right wavelengths of light, we could actually see the fact that we have oxygen in our atmosphere, and it would be a pretty good indicator that we've got slime here, or life here of some sort. Okay, well, thank you very much, Tori, for stopping in. Yeah, good luck with the slime. Now, do you want to take the slime back? Because if we leave it here, it looks like tofu, and someone may eat it. I'll leave that up to you. It's a lovely parting gift for you. Ooh, yeah, let's could leave you it eat out. it? Could you eat it? You could eat that with no ill effects. Yeah, on you. How about on the slime? Oh, give it a shot and see. <laughs> All right, Tori. Thanks a lot. All right. See you guys. I should probably just wash my hands. I have green dye all over them. Should we just leave the slime here? Or can we come and clean this up later, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I don't think anybody will mistake this for lunch or anything. I'll, I'll, I'll meet you in the studio. I'm just going to wash my hands. Okay, Molly. See you later. Tori Holler is an astrobiologist at NASA Ames. Hey, uh, if you want to make your own slime or see the creation that we made, just go to our blob. Just kidding. Go to our blog at radio.seti.org. You can schmooze with our ooze there. Okay, so we know that slime may be gross and disgusting, but we're coming to appreciate how essential it is for life. Slugs and snails use slime to help them crawl, and humans produce mucus to fight germs. But to find one of the slimiest animals on Earth, we'll have to leave dry land behind. And take a dive. It's here in the cold depths of the bottom of the sea that we'll find hagfish, also known as slime eels, scavenging through the carcasses of fish, whales, and other sea creatures. These slithering slabs of slime are neither fish nor are they eels, but they're living fossils that mark the evolution from invertebrates to vertebrates. Hagfish normally spend their days working as the ocean floor's cleaning crew. But if a predator disturbs a hagfish, well, it's in for a pretty nasty surprise. And Seth, if you want to get an idea of that, I want you to take a look at this video here. I just pulled it up. Wait a minute, um, that's on our blog, right? You can also find it on our blog, Are We a Blog? And just describe for me what you see here. Well, a researcher has just scraped some slime off this hagfish. Right, and he's put it in that little vial there. Yeah, yeah. It's just a tiny little cup, sort of enough for a shot of whiskey or something. There's water in that cup. My God, look at it. He pulls out, that's endless amounts of slime. That's my, that's Mondo slime. <laughs> that's, that's incredible that, that that little tiny bit made all that slime. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And biologist Donald Fudge is interested in the unique properties of just what you saw oozing from that hagfish, Seth. And that's why it's become the focus of lab research. Doug, Seth and I just watched this video of a hagfish. I think he's uh, thinking twice about going to have a bite to eat later today because of that. Uh, certainly what we saw in this video is something you're familiar with. The researcher took a little bit of slime and he put it in a cup of water. What would you guess happened next? Well, I would guess that it expanded and pretty much turned the entire cup of water into into slime. That's exactly what it did. It filled the whole cup. It was really, really gross. What actually was going on? Well, that's something that we're still trying to work out. I mean, we know quite a bit about what makes up the slime. What we don't fully understand is how it goes from this concentrated exudate to this expanded slimy material in, in a very short amount of time, actually. And it really does expand. So that's what would happen in the in the ocean water? Yeah. I mean, we think that that process happens when, when a hagfish is threatened in some way. At least that's when it happens most dramatically. So if you try to grab a hagfish in a bucket, 
um, the first thing it does is releases slime and produces huge volumes of this stuff. When we say huge volumes, what sort of quantities are we talking about? I mean, it's, it really is quite alarming. So a 150-gram <laughs> hagfish, which is sort of typical Pacific or Atlantic hagfish, can make about a liter of slime in, we estimate, about a tenth of a second, so about 100 milliseconds. Oh, have you ever felt it? What's it feel like? Everyone who, who touches hagfish slime is is surprised. There's no one who's felt hagfish and not experienced some sense of surprise and wonder because it's you expect it to be like a typical slime, but it's really quite dilute. And the most startling thing about it is that it has these fibers that run throughout it. So there's tens of thousands of protein fibers that hold the slime together. And can, you, can you feel them when you touch the slime? You can. It's, so it's, it's almost like you know, a, a three-dimensional spider web that is somewhat mucusy. <laughs> Delightful. Um, it's, yeah, it's a very strange <laughs> sensation. Well, now, how does this work as a defense? Does it just gross the fish out so much that they turn away? <laughs> what we think happens is that, you know, if a fish comes along and tries to inhale a hagfish or bite a hagfish, what happens is this slime gets shot out of the slime glands and ends up expanding and getting caught on the gills of the fish. <clears throat> and we know that the, the slime is quite good at clogging the gills. We've done some experiments with isolated fish heads, actually, and shown that the flow across gills is really curtailed by um, getting hagfish slime on them. So the fish really are slimed. Where, where is this stuff in, ejected from? You said from the glands. Where are those? So they have glands all over their body, from their head to their tail, and they, they run down both sides of the body. So a Pacific hagfish has about 150 of these slime glands. The slime is the sort of thing that, you know, if you you needed a quick fix for insulating your home. Maybe you could just stick in some of the slime and shoot in some water, and there you'd have cheap and instant insulation. We don't know if that's... That may be in the works down the line. Now, I understand that they also these hagfish can also tie themselves in a knot. How does that protect them? Uh, it doesn't protect them. So it turns out that they don't like the slime very much either. So it's very rare that the, the animal will end up in its own slime. But this does happen occasionally. What they do when this happens is they tie their body in a knot and then they pass that knot down their body. Um, and that essentially wipes the slime off. Oh. It's, it's, it's really hard to describe, but it's, it's pretty phenomenal to actually watch this. So they're really not doing it to protect themselves, but to clean themselves off? Yeah, and they'll sort of just do this repeatedly until all of the slime is wiped off their body. You know, every animal on the planet has some sort of defense mechanism, or I should say many do, and there, there's a variety of ways that animals protect themselves. Any interesting stories or angles as to how slime developed as a, a defense mechanism in these creatures? We don't really know how, how the slime evolved. What we do know is that hagfish slime is quite unique among slimes, if you will. Um, so most slimes are just a mixture of highly glycosylated proteins. These are proteins that have lots of carbohydrate groups stuck on them. These types of glycosylated proteins are very good at, at binding water, and that's what makes slime slime usually. And hagfish slime is, is very unique in that it has these really long, fine fibers that I mentioned earlier that are sort of like spider silks in there. You've also called them slime threads, I think. Yeah, so we, yeah. we call them slime threads. But they really are a lot like spider silk in many ways. And as far as we know, this is the only slime on the planet that is, is reinforced with a fibrous component. 
And this is one of the most amazing things about hagfish slime is that the fibrous component is actually made within the cytoplasm of a single cell. And what these cells do is they manufacture this polymer that is continuous from one side of the cell to the other, and it's very intricately coiled. And when these things hit seawater, they unravel, and we don't really understand how they unravel in the way that they do. And that way it's very different from spider silk because they're, they're pre-made and then they just sort of sproing open, whereas a spider silk is made as it's released. When you say it's pre-coiled like that and it comes shooting out, it sounds a little bit like Spider-Man's web. It's, it's much more like Spider-Man than real spiders, in fact. Now, all of your interest in the slime of the hagfish is, is not idle because you think there may be practical value to this, and you're mm-hmm. interested in the composition of the slime, the slime thread and the mucus and how it interacts, because, because you may want to replicate the properties for practical application. What might that be? Well, there's, there's been a lot of interest in trying to make artificial silk-like fibers in particular spider silk-like fibers. Now that's because spider silk is so strong. It's It's so incredibly strong. It's so strong, strong, yeah, and tough. And unfortunately, in spite of huge amounts of research dollars and effort that have gone into this, as you know, we don't have industrial-scale factories that are making, you know, spider silk for human use. And one of the things we know about these slime threads is that their mechanical properties are quite remarkable. And if we treat them in a certain way, we can get them to behave a lot like spider silk. Can you give me one practical application of this synthesized slime thread? I mean, my sort of best case scenario vision for this is, you know, ultimately to be able to replace uh, fibers like nylon. You know, we spend a lot of petrochemicals on making materials like nylon and, and Kevlar. And eventually petroleum is going to run out and we're going to have to figure out ways to make materials like nylon and Kevlar from more sustainable sources. Now, have you Uh, thought about how you're going to market this? Um, I'm thinking about, I sometimes (laughs) wear nylons, saying that it was made with hagfish slime. I don't know that that's a a major selling point. I could be wrong. Depends on how you spin it. I mean, hagfish are certainly not as sexy as spiders. Um, (laughs) And there is no hagfish man superhero either. So... But, you know, marketers are clever. There's, so in the 1980s, there were wallets that were quite popular that were known as eelskin wallets. And you may, rem- may remember those. And those were actually made from hagfish leather. But there was some clever marketer who realized that if these things were stamped genuine hagfish leather, that probably wouldn't be a big seller. So they, they decided to call them eelskin. <laughs> All right. So maybe eel thread will be the marketing spin in these in this ultra-durable <laughs> nylons, it, that's the idea, is that they would just be very durable. Well, they'd be, yeah, they'd be very strong, um, which means that they can withstand a lot of force before they break, and they'd be very tough. That's one of the, the really remarkable things about spider silk is its toughness, which means that it can absorb lots of energy before it fails. Um, and spider silk is really one of the, the toughest materials known. And finally, would you hesitate at all to wear a nylon jacket made out of hagfish slime threads? Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Douglas Fudge, thanks for talking to us today. Oh, thank you very much. Douglas Fudge is a biologist at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. And if you want to see that slime in action, and I really recommend this, go to our blog, Are We a Blog? And watch the hagfish do his thing. Up next, some people fear slime, but of the nano kind. Also, why slime molds are the most social of all cells. It's Are We Alone? Science Radio for Thinking Species on Any World. 
the world is teeming with biological diversity, so it's not uncommon to meet a biologist with a slightly esoteric area of expertise. And that's the case with John Tyler Bonner of Princeton University, who studies slime molds. Which sound like another kind of slime, the kind of thing that would be coating a Petri dish with sticky goo. But slime molds are not slime. They're a special sort of amoebae found all over the world and that live on dead plant material. They can appear gelatinous during part of their life cycle, hence the name slime mold, but otherwise they're fungi-like. And fungi is probably an appropriate term to describe what John Bonner calls gregarious amoebae. Individual cells feed on their own before coming together as a happy, highly adaptive multicellular whole. Uh, You probably think of amoebae as these kind of microbial loners you saw under a high school microscope, but these guys like to work together. The Social Amoebae is the title of John Bonner's book. The professor emeritus of ecology has studied cellular slime molds for more than 50 years. Okay, so maybe you haven't heard of slime molds. But Dr. Bonner reminds us not to ignore the tiniest players in life's drama. They're amoebae. They're single-celled amoebae, and they're about the size and very look very similar to our white blood cells. And now what they do is they are in the soil, and they feed on bacteria. When they've finished eating and all the bacteria are gone, then they come together to form this multicellular organism. So they may have a thousand, even a million of amoebae come together and form first a slug and then a little fruiting body, which sticks up in the air. Apparently, the reason for the fruiting body is that they want to get some way in which they can spread the spores of these amoebae to other places in the soil where there might be bacteria to eat. Uh, so that the coming together to be multicellular and producing the slime all has to do with getting dispersed, with finding new places to eat. Is it, is it finding new places to eat, or is it making more of themselves? Is this reproduction or just... Uh, well, you know, they, can't, they can't make more of themselves unless they eat. Okay, sort of a slime mold movable feast. Exactly, so, so, exactly right. Very good. <laughs> well, but, but how do they do that? All right, so now they're this little dot of thousands, maybe even as many as a, a million amoebae put together. Yes, yeah. All right, and so there they are. And, and now how do they get to their next meal? They migrate as a mass... Uh, this little slug migrates to the surface of the soil. So it moves, and it moves in one direction, and that direction is towards the soil surface. And then it sticks a little fruiting body up in the air with spores at the tips, and insects, mites, all sorts of invertebrates in the soil, of which there are a great many. If they pass by them, they pick up the sticky spores, and then they keep going, and, and they'll, if they wander through a patch of bacteria, then they drop off a few spores, and the next generation of slime moles can start again. So it isn't that these recently fattened, if you will, I mean, they've just eaten. Right? A bunch of these amoebae, a large number of these amoebae, have just eaten, and then they produce these spores, but they don't really directly benefit. I mean, their genes benefit, I guess, because they get descendants, but they don't actually physically go anywhere, do they? Oh, yes, because maybe two-thirds of them turn into spores. And, and, and the other third, this is really interesting, make a little stalk which holds them up in the air so they'll catch the passing insects. And so it's a very interesting sort of case of sociobiology where a third of the amoebae die to carry the ones that are spores up into the air so they can be spread. So this is really a division of labor. This is really absolutely social amoebae. And you speak of them as social amoebae, I believe. And, yes. and yet, I mean, the very term, you know, I, I'm trying to picture these guys working a cocktail party. <laughs> but you, one doesn't think of amoebae as being clever enough to engage in social behavior. 
Well, it's quite amazing that they do, and they're studied now by a number of sociobiologists who think, hey, here's an ideal system to work on. Well, would you be able to see such a uh, coagulation of amoebae such as slime mold? Would you be able to see it with your naked eye? Well, <laughs> let me say two things, and that is that you couldn't without, without a microscope. Because the amoebae, as I said earlier, are, are the size of white blood cells, so they're really very, very small. Of course, what we do is cheat always. We just take some soil, bring it into the laboratory, and, and get rid of the soil and, and grow the amoebae on agar jelly that you can see through. But now the fruiting bodies themselves, if you have a culture dish, uh, you can see those with your naked eye. They're about the size of uh, very small pins with pinheads. And uh, the reason they're called slime moles actually is goes way back and into German uh, scientists in, in the 19th century uh, who thought they looked like fungi, and so they called them slimy fungi uh, because they left a little track behind as they wander. It's said, John, that these slime molds are somehow key to biology in general. In which, in which way are they key? Well, that's an interesting question uh, because some people would say, oh, they're just peculiar. But uh, my answer would be that because they do things differently, it gives you insights as to the way ordinary animals and plants develop and behave. And it means living things uh, aren't stuck in one system. They can, they can have great variety. You're obviously very excited about slime molds. You've written a book about it, after all. It's been your passion for a long time. Actually, it's the third book I wrote, wrote about. I, okay, it's even, even more passion. Where does this passion come from? I mean, I, I, I can hardly imagine that when you were, you know, 15 years old, you said, you know, slime molds, that's where the action is. How did you get interested in this? Oh, I, I, I was at college, and I knew I was interested in biology since I was about 12. But when I got to college, I suddenly realized that everything in biology was fascinating. What was I going to do? And so I became interested in lower organisms, algae, fungi, and things of that sort. And then I also became tremendously interested in embryology, how you get from an egg to an adult. It seemed to me an extremely important problem. And so one day, suddenly it dawned on me, why don't I use some primitive microorganism to examine the problems of embryology? So essentially what I've been doing all my life is slime mold embryology. And it has turned out to be a, a, a very effective way of getting at some of the fundamental problems. So if you had to encapsulate what we have learned that's fundamental in terms of these these processes, these evolutionary processes, what, what would you say? What have we learned from studying slime molds for as long as we have? Well, I would say from an evolutionary point of view, it shows that there's tremendous selection pressure, natural selection, for distribution of the spores in this case. In other words, for spreading things, for dispersal. And many, many moles in the soil have little fruiting bodies which stick up in the air, and they're not related to slime moles at all. And so the evolutionary pressure to have a system where you can spread spores is really very sort of fundamental and universal. Well, finally, John, how important are slime molds? Obviously, they're important to you, but how important are they to life on Earth? I mean, you know, if you could push a button and all the slime molds just evaporated tomorrow, uh, would we miss them? Well, that's a, that's, that's a, I hadn't th thought of it quite that way, but it's a good question. And I think, the first thing, there are an enormous number of amoebae in the soil, particularly in the forest soils, so that the tonnage of amoebae uh, is really a, a, a amazing. And now 
they feed on bacteria. So if, if you eliminated all the cellular slime molds, bang, one of the things that would happen is there would be one tremendous surge in bacteria in the soil. Uh, now, probably that would balance out some way or other, but that, <clears throat> that would be a big, big um, change uh, be- because as far as bacteria eating, they really uh, are big operators. Okay, so you would lose some, if you will, bacteria predator, but I mean something Exactly, else. that's what they are. Okay, but so, but wouldn't some other predator come in uh, to fill that niche? I mean, would, would that really disrupt the ecology of Earth in a serious way? Well, ha- I, nature is so good at uh, balancing after catastrophes that probably in a, in a bit that would somehow or rather something else would take over to eat uh, all those bacteria. John Bonner, thank you so much for helping us get a handle on this slippery subject. You're you're very welcome. John Tyler Bonner is Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Princeton University. His book is The Social Amoebae, The Biology of Cellular Slime Molds. Bonner reminds us of the beauty of the world writ very small. But not everything that comes in small packages is charming and benign. When it comes to nanotechnology, the smaller you go, the higher the stakes. Now, nanotech is manufacturing on the atomic or molecular scale. It's, it's engineering the minuscule. Tiny machines could soon be rearranging individual atoms to build novel materials or anything that needs to be assembled, cars, chairs, TVs, all from the bottom up. Or they could be building very small machines, biohelpers, that could slip into the bloodstream and battle cancer cells. But the potential of nanotechnology has a possible downside. Is it wise to create nanomachines that not only build things, but out of necessity, also self-replicate to do so? In other words, should we build self-replicating nanobots? And if we did, could we control them? Okay, you might be wondering what all this has to do with slime. Well, the unstoppable self-replication of nanobots might lead to something called gray goo. And that term refers not only to the colorless hue produced by a growing mass of tiny swarming robots, but also to the condition of the Earth after these ravenous, fuel-seeking mechanical mites devour all the available biomass and leave the planet as a gelatinous mound of sludge. The gray goo problem has been raised by the co-founder of Sun Microsystems, Bill Joy, in an article in Wired, and by author Michael Crichton in his book, Prey. Even Prince Charles publicly aired his gooing concerns a few years ago. So how can we assess whether the threat of gray goo is silly or serious? Well, Molly asked Chris Phoenix, the director of research at the Center for Responsible Nanotechnology. Chris, should we be worried about gray goo bigger things to worry about than the theoretical possibility of gray goo. Okay, so you can't say, no, we shouldn't be worried at all. I can't say that no one will ever have the capability to build it. I can say that it will not happen by accident. When you say anyone would not have the capability to build it, it being these tiny robots that would then self-replicate uncontrollably? Gray goo would require several different capabilities, all of which are difficult. It would require a robot that is mobile, very, very small, uh, able to not only stay functional in a, a very random, difficult environment, but able to gather food and energy from that environment. It would have to contain its complete blueprint, which is not easy at the nanoscale, it would have to be capable of manufacturing all of its parts with a very sophisticated, flexible, and slow and inefficient manufacturing system. And it would have to do all of these things fast enough to replicate before 
background radiation destroyed it. Say a little bit more about this. what this robot would look like. We're talking about a robot on the nanoscale. This is a scale of molecules and, and atoms. How do you get a robot that's that small? So robot means a lot of different things, and a manufacturing robot can be as simple as a computer-controlled drill press. That's the kind of robot that a molecular manufacturing factory would have in it, computer-controlled drill presses or conveyor belts or whatever. If you took them out of the factory, they would be completely inert. To call gray goo a robot is like calling a bacterium a robot. It's more accurate to call it a self-contained system. And the idea is that it would need to self-replicate so it could make more of itself in order to build whatever it was building. Well, no. Let's back up a minute. A molecular manufacturing system would not be small. So you could have a tabletop box like a laser printer, and it could contain lots of molecular tools, which would be as inert as a wrench. That would be a factory that was useful. So that's a molecular manufacturing system of the type that people would design. So to be dangerous, a gray goo robot would have to be far smaller than any useful manufacturing system. All right. Well, in this scenario, where was the self-replication threat perceived to be? The threat was perceived to be making a small package containing everything you would need to have one or two robotic manufacturing tools at the molecular scale and the computer to control them, which would probably be much larger than the tools themselves, and the shell to protect it, and the chemical processing systems, and everything else you need, all in a package small enough that it would blow around like dust until it found something to eat. Well, what's interesting is it sounds like you're saying there isn't much of a threat from gray goo, but but the idea itself came from one of the fathers of nanotechnology, Eric Drexler, and he was the one that first raised the concern that you could have a manufacturing process that would ultimately be uncontrollable. That was early in Drexler's thinking when he was thinking still in terms of building things like bacteria. And so his first picture of a manufacturing system was of small, separately encapsulated robots with onboard computer control, which would have to not only be able to build a wide range of things in a very small space with a very small computer, but also be able to cooperate. In other words, you would have to download the blueprint to a billion robots and have each of them work on their correct part in the correct place. That is something that I've never been quite sure would be practical. And fortunately, as far back as 1992, he realized that you didn't have to do the small self-contained manufacturing robots. You could just put one big shell around the whole thing and have the robots not be self-contained, have them fastened down in a factory structure. So it sounds like nanobots probably won't run away and be the problem, but the idea of nanobots running away and creating this gray goo has posed a public relations problem, at least for nanotechnology, and and you're there at the Center for Responsible Nanotechnology, and I'm assuming that you probably spend at least a fair amount of your time addressing these public concerns. What kind of things have you had to to address and write about? Well, the question does still come up. Fairly early on, around the time that CRN was getting started, there was an organization that was slipping gray goo into its press releases about nanoparticles, and... So we issued a press release or two saying, look, this just isn't cool. This is misinforming people, and it's not going to help the discussion. And they've since backed off on that, which I appreciate. 
very recently there's a video going around the web showing how to destroy the world with gray goo and basically you sneak into a lab push one button on a device that doesn't exist to theoretically reprogram a device that wouldn't exist in the lab at all there, there's so many problems with the video if it showed someone waving a magic wand and making a a dangerous disease or nanobot uh, or or planet-eating Megatron anime robot appear, uh, waving a magic wand would be a much more accurate rendition of what the video depicts than pushing a button. All right, Chris, so it sounds like Hollywood probably, well, Hollywood may come out with a movie called The Grey Goo Problem or something, um, but we don't really need to fear it. It's certainly not the biggest thing to fear. If people are looking at molecular manufacturing and want to get active, talking about deliberate uses of the technology will do a lot more to help us uh, survive it than talking about gray goo. Chris Phoenix is Director of Research at the Center for Responsible Nanotechnology in California. The center's website is crnano.org. If you go there, you can also find links to their blog. Okay, so maybe gray goo won't keep you up at night, but what about... The Blob! Starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. Get ready to run for the hills on Are We Alone? It came from outer space. Golly, Steve, what a beautiful night. It is, Jane. That's why I brought you to this remote location away from town in the dark and parked the car. I thought we could look at the stars. Oh, Steve. What's that in the sky? It looks like a meteor. It's crashed at the farm of the old man that lives down the road. Holy smokes! Maybe we should go check it out. And that's how it begins. 1958. Two teenagers on a date. A streak in the sky. A crash landing of something from outer space. A gelatinous red blob oozes from the crash site. It devours the old man, then moves from victim to fresh victim, enveloping each in a suffocating wrap of gooey jello. Can the blob be stopped? Who can tell us how this horror story ends? My name is Andre Bormanis, and I am a television writer and producer living in Los Angeles. Andre, the blob, it uh, swept across cinema screens in 1958, uh, kind of a cult film. It was a small production. What do you remember of that? You know, I remember seeing it as a kid. I was born maybe a year after it came out in the theaters, but it certainly made the rounds on television and was a lot more popular than anybody expected at the time. Clearly became a cult classic and really Steve McQueen's first feature role, as I recall. He did some TV work prior to that and in fact turned down a share of the profits of the film. He was paid $3,000 to make the blob. He turned down a smaller upfront sum, which would have given him 10% interest in the film and the profits. He didn't think it would go anywhere. He thought it would, you know, be out of out of the theaters within a week. Uh, ended up making something like $4 million in his first run, which was real money in 1958. So <laughs> he uh, he made a bad call there, but went on, obviously, to have a great career. So. Yeah. It, it didn't make a gob of uh, money on the blob. Uh, you know, it was also, I think, uh, kind of a debut for the guy who wrote the score, this guy, Burt Bacharach. Burt Bacharach, yes. Uh, a novelty song, and uh, nobody expected it to have any longevity. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do recall it. It was recorded, as I recall, by the Five Blobs. The five Blobs. Yeah, you see a bunch of guys thrown together in a studio. Yeah, basically some studio musicians, and that's the way things were often done back in those days. So. Well, for those people who haven't seen the original Blob, let me just describe what I remember. And it was a teenage film. There were a lot of teenage rebel films, and this was, you know, one of the better ones, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was Steve McQueen in the female lead, played by uh, Anita Corsout. So they're in a, in a... They're in a car somewhere. It's a dark night. They're parked somewhere in a town in Pennsylvania, Dowingtown, Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, they see a, a meteor land. Bam. And, you know, they chase after it in the car. They look at the meteor and it, it, it's covered with craters. This meteor is about the size of a basketball. <laughs> covered with craters that are even smaller. These craters are like, you know, the size of a quarter. I don't know what, what causes craters the size of a quarter. But in any case, and, uh, you know, and, and the blob creeps out, right? And they see this thing, and it begins to take off across the countryside. Yeah, I think it actually, uh, it struck a guy that they almost hit with their car, and they ended up taking him to a doctor, and the doctor sees this thing, and it's growing, and they don't know what's going on, and it comes back to haunt them when they go to check on the guy at the doctor's office. I guess they see either the doctor or his nurse get consumed by the ever-growing blob. And, you know, what was interesting about all of this, to me, is that Yes, it very much was a teen film, and it was certainly a popular activity back in the 50s and at least into the 60s to go to a theater and see one of these uh, creeper features and go to a nice, fun, scary movie with your date. But also I think that, you know, there was a real kind of exploitation of the disgust that people feel toward things that are kind of slimy and dirty. And my recollection of the very late 50s and early 60s, having kind of grown up in that 50s culture, I guess, you know, is that there was, an, there was a very strong emphasis in this country on, on hygiene, on cleanliness. And I think that it was probably a way to uh, exploit the, the fear of the slimy things that, that are beneath the surface inside our bodies. It's slimy. Ooh, everything should be clean and neat and, uh, you know, kept in its proper place. And the blob was the antithesis of that. And as such, I think it touched a lot of nerves. It was very scary, although I suspect that young children who tend to be drawn to slimy creatures before they're, they're taught how to fear that sort of thing would have found the blob actually very appealing in a lot of ways. Well, that's an interesting physiological explanation for the, <laughs> you know, the scary properties of the blob. Well, what about a political explanation? I mean, here was this red thing. They were talking in the 50s about creeping socialism which indeed was just a euphemism for creeping communism. Sure. And, and here was this, you know, oozing red thing, because the blob was red, yeah. red red menace, right? Mm-hmm. It, it even oozed through the, the, the projection holes in a theater filled with teenagers watching some movie, right? I mean, right. What, what could be worse? It was yeah, a, exactly. And that was, you know, that was a common denominator among a lot of uh, horror films and science fiction films back in the 50s and, and into the 60s. But probably they reached their zenith in the 50s in films like The Blob and, well, The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is a very fine film directed by Robert Wise, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That was a little bit more about the flip side, the, the, you know, the McCarthyism that ran rampant in the 1950s. Today it seems a little quaint or even almost naive to look at the rather obvious metaphor of <laughs> the creeping red scourge that's uh, attacking our youth. 
Yeah, yeah, the Cold War, but a lot of hot movies. Well, as I recall, McQueen and Corso, these teenagers, of course, do yeah. see this, you know, the, the, this guy's medical practice is wiped out as the blob chows down on the doc and his nurse and somebody right. else, I think. I don't know. And, and they try and convince the police that there's something slimy trying to threaten Towing Town without much success at first. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that struck me is every time the blob would eat something and, it, it you know, it just routinely every five minutes it would eat another victim. <laughs> But it would keep getting bigger. You know, mm-hmm. you would eat a 150, 200 pound person, and the blob was now 150 or 200 pounds bigger. Right. And you know, <laughs> if that happened to us, I mean, we'd be you know hundreds of thousands of pounds after a couple of years. <laughs> I, I thought have, that was kind of no. You ex- have to wonder about the blob's metabolism. Yeah, no uh, excretory function there. It, was just <laughs> <laughs> it is its own excrement, perhaps. I don't know. Is <laughs> um, a do- totally different metaphor there, but. Yeah, you know, that was something that certainly back in those days, and even today, it's not necessarily the kind of thing that the writer would think through. They're more interested in pursuing that metaphor and the mechanics of how that might work in terms of real-world biology is always highly suspect. But another thing that I find interesting about the film, and I don't know if I'd call it prescient because I think the idea was out there, and certainly you would know this, is the notion that life could arrive from space inside meteorites and that, in fact, if not actual living organisms, certainly the organic components that made life on Earth possible were delivered probably in large part from comet and meteor bombardments early in the history of the Earth. So that aspect of it, I think, is actually, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, although it was very nicely packaged, actually. It, it, it just didn't look like nature. I mean, right. this thing sort of opened up. It was, it was reminiscent, actually, of War of the Worlds, the first version of War of the Worlds, which was, well, I think, four years earlier. Remember? And and again, a meteor slams through yeah. the sky and it lands on the ground. There's a big hole, and the, then they go take a look at it, and the top unscrews. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and how come That's the Martians? <laughs> right. And and so this sort of had the you know this is an echo of that because in fact this thing opens up and out comes a fully formed little blob, mm-hmm. and, and then he takes off and and decides to chow down on the natives. Uh, and of course, the the whole crux of the film is how do you stop this thing? Because for some reason. You know, just getting out of the way isn't good enough. I mean, it's going right. to eat you no matter what. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they try to electrocute it. They try flamethrowers. You know, they throw softballs at it, whatever they, whatever they can think of until somebody finally figures it out. I think it was in a diner, the final scene. And they, they, when they try to electrocute the blob, they end up setting the diner on fire. And Steve McQueen and his gal are trapped. And McQueen grabs a fire extinguisher to try to save them from the fire and ends up discovering that, oh my gosh, when I, when I blast the blob, it, it, it literally freezes it in its tracks. And that's how they end up subduing it. And I believe in the final scene, there's some sort of an army helicopter hauling this frozen mass down to Antarctica and just dropping it on the ice, which, you know, you'd think the military would come up with a better plan than that to dispose of this thing, or maybe, God forbid, they should study it. They just keep it on ice. It becomes penguin feed. That's what penguin happens. Penguin feed, yes. And, uh, <laughs> You know, the blob in its next incarnation has thousands of flippers, but um, <laughs> it, did, it did set up the opportunity for a sequel. So, you know, there's always that. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I have to ask, when I saw this, it, it occurred to me, this was presumably a single-celled creature, admittedly from space, from somewhere in space. Mm-hmm. But a single-celled creature struck me as very vulnerable because all you have to do is kill one cell. Yeah. You know, how hard you, is that? You, you wouldn't see. You would think you just poke it with a stick and you know break a cell wall or something like that. A little a dis- listerine. I don't know. Yeah, a disease maybe. Maybe maybe just keep it dry. You know, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but that that was a problem. Well, finally, 
Finally, Andre, this film ends with the usual title, as they all did in those days, The End. But, of course, there was a question mark. Yes. And uh, I'm not quite sure what they meant by that. Did they mean, mean that, you know, be careful on your way out of the theater because you might hit some ooze? Or did they just mean, uh, you know, they were going to make a remake? You know, probably a little bit of both. I think that, uh, you know, when these movies are done right, it's like a roller coaster ride. It's both thrilling and scary. And they want you to have that feeling, sustain that feeling when you leave the theater. So that's the final little jolt that they give you at the end of the film when you think it's all over and, oh, we're safe now and we've, you know, we've escaped the ravages of the blob. Well, that little question mark tells you maybe not. Better keep your eyes peeled. So it's, it's the last little bump at the end of the roller coaster ride. And I think it's, it's a part of what made, made going to those movies so much fun. So they did make a sequel to this about 15 years after The Blob. Uh, that was kind of a parody. But is there any intention to do what was done with The Day the Earth Stood Still or War of the Worlds and actually make a modern remake? Well, Hollywood is always looking to the past to try to find ideas for, for current films. And remakes are very popular in, uh, in Hollywood because they are known quantities. They have some sense of what the film could be and, and an opportunity to reimagine it and try to do it new, recognizing that people will say, oh, yeah, I remember that's a great, that was a great title, that was a great movie, I'd love to see what they did with it now. And so I believe Paramount has a sequel to The Blob in development. That doesn't mean that it'll get made anytime soon or that the Paramount studio will do it. But I, I think just as someday we will be struck again by a meteor <laughs> on, this, on this island Earth, there will be a remake of The Blob. Well, all I can say is keep it away from the jello. Andre <laughs> Bormanis, thanks very much. Always a pleasure, Seth. Andre Bormanis is a television writer and producer living in Los Angeles. Well, Seth, that's it for the show. Yep, and it starred a cast of exciting young people, including Barbara Vance, Gary Niederhoff, and Emmanuel Romero, without whom the program wouldn't be possible. And that goes for the SETI Institute, too, whose mission is to understand life on this planet and the possibility of it elsewhere, whether it be intelligent or a gooey lump of cellular slime. Hey, what was that? I don't know. It sounded like it came from the kitchen. Maybe we should just go check it out. Okay. Hang on. Hey, where where is everybody? Yeah, it's kind of deserted here. It's, it's, it's Hey, that's weird. Look at that. That, look at the bulge in the kitchen door. It's a massive ball of slime. It's our green slime. It's grown. And it's gurgling like it's digesting. Ugh. It's not just the slime we made earlier in the show, Molly. It must have merged with that biological slime Tori left behind to create a metabolizing mutant monster. Luckily, I know... Seth, look out! ...how to stop it. We just... <laughs> Alas, gentle listeners, that's it. Contact with our heroes has been tragically severed. We don't know how the sentence ends or whether Seth had a foolproof plan for stopping that monster, Kitchen Slime. Did he even know what he was talking about? We don't know because that's the end. Or is it?